John chapter number 2. We finished chapter 1 last time and uh, just for a minute or two let's review what we've seen so far. So Jesus right now he has five disciples with him and you know John's John's mission in writing this was uh, to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. So we're going to have, he's going to highlight some things, some events, some discourses and teaching that the Lord did. Um, and all of it is to prove to you and to me who the Lord Jesus is. So John the Baptist has give testimony. And if you'd follow the days along, so John the Baptist is questioned. That's day one. The next day, um, he sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The next day, he's got two of his disciples there with him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they followed. And that was Andrew, Peter's brother, as well as we believe to be John the Apostle that wrote this book. Andrew goes and finds Peter and they follow Jesus. And the next day, Jesus goes into Cana, finds uh, Nathaniel and Philip. They're called. They follow him. And then here in chapter 2 in the third day. So if you add all that up, you, you wind up with seven days. We know the significance of seven days. And after this, John's going to really forsake the chronological order and numbering of things. So I, I do believe that there's some significance there. What's going on? The Lord Jesus has come and the seven day significance is looking all the way back to the original creation. That seventh day, I, I realize that was the day that the Lord rested and maybe we would say the work was finished before, but that day of rest was a part of the creation. The Sabbath was created there for man and for man's benefit a day of rest and a day of reverence to God that made all things. And so here is the Lord Jesus and from His, uh, from his first witness of John until His first miracle, we've got seven days and a new creation is beginning to be set in order by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's read, uh, let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 and maybe we'll walk down through this first miracle that we see. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto his servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. 
but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So the first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be a marriage now in Cana of Galilee, and the Lord Jesus is going to take time to go and be present at the marriage. I think it's worth saying that the Lord ought to be, we ought to desire His blessing and His favor on all things that we do. The Lord was invited here, and the Lord came. And so uh, you think about now, Mary Jesus and His disciples, they're called and they attend. Joseph's not mentioned. So I said before, you don't see Joseph in the scriptural accounts after when Jesus was 12 in the temple and they came back looking for him there. So it's widely assumed that Joseph died at a fairly early age. And if you read in Mark, remember I mentioned this scripture before, Mark chapter 6 verse 3, when they're talking about Jesus, they said, is not this the carpenter? So we know Joseph was a carpenter. He's called in some places the son of the carpenter. But you know, when, when Joseph dies, and we're assuming that to be the case, when Joseph dies, it would fall to the firstborn to be the provider for the family. The father's dead. He's out of the way. The firstborn son's going to step into the family business. And I believe by what we read in Mark, that's what Jesus did. His father died. He steps in and takes over the business and he's providing for the family. He's doing his duty as a son, as a man on the earth. He's performing his duty to care for his family. And so uh, here, when they wanted wine, so a marriage in this day, was a, it was a big feast and in some cases lasted several days. They would have the marriage and they would celebrate and, and the culture in this day was very much a, a shame culture. And you didn't want shame brought on your name through the community. That's uh, somewhat the way it is today. We don't want our name to be marred amongst those that we know and those that we live around. But in this day, that, that was really everything. The reputation, and you didn't want to be known as somebody that, that was a nobody. You see that through the Pharisees thinking, I mean, they're thinking they're above everybody and shaming down people. And so here, they're going to run out of wine. And that's something that could bring great shame on the bridegroom's family that they called this together and they didn't have what it took and it would be a mark against their name and their reputation. And so Mary, Mary looks to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now you think about these verses and the hardest thing for me is verse 3, 4, and 5. In 3, Mary doesn't ask for Jesus to do anything. She says they have no wine. And no doubt she says this is, this is a terrible thing. This is going to mar the family in the view of everybody here. The reputation is going to greatly suffer 
because of this. But she doesn't ask for anything. Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now that's unfortunate translation. What he's saying is, what does that have to do with me and you? We would say in our language, how is that our business? Is that not true? So she says they have no wine, and he said that's not going to affect me and you. That's not any of our business. And he says woman as well. And he, he doesn't say mother and people say, well, that's disrespectful. But I remember this. He's Jesus, the Son of Mary, but He's also Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is, remember, David said, the Lord said unto my Lord. He was the Son of David, but He was David's Lord as well. And so here, Jesus has been baptized and His ministry has begun and there's going to have to be a separation of these relationships. He's been the faithful son. He's been submitted to his mother. He did take over the family business and provide, but now it's time for the father's business to begin. And so he is still Mary's mother in the flesh, but he's Mary's Lord in the Spirit. And he's not his work and his will is not submissive to her. Do you see that? She's to be submissive to the Lord. And you say, well, she's his mother. Well, she's not in eternity's face, the Lord's mother. The Word, the eternal Word that always has been and that was creating the world in the beginning and that made and formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, he was made to be flesh. He wasn't created. He was made to be flesh. So He was her Lord. And there has to be a recognition of that. And remember, even, even at His death, as He's hanging on the cross, He takes the time to look to John and say, Behold thy mother, and woman, behold your son. It's not a lack of love. Certainly Jesus couldn't be accused of that. Even in His death, He's making sure that she is going to be taken care of. But He is the Lord as well. And just because Mary wants something, that doesn't mean the Lord has to do it. That's a Catholic doctrine today. They pray to Mary because they think Mary can get the Lord to do to the Father. And it's, it's a convoluted mess. The Lord is our intercessor. The Lord is Mary's Lord. The Lord is David's Lord. The Lord is our Lord. And He's the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And He's going to say, All power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And God set Him as the mediator. I don't need a mediator to go to the mediator to go to the Father. We go to Him. We go through Him. Every one of us individually. And how wonderful that is. That we can take care of our business with a Father through the Lord and we don't need another man to seek out in order to seek Him. See, they didn't have it then. They had to go to the priest. And the priest had to go to God. 
Today we have Jesus Christ. So he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? In Psalm 110, verse 1, that's where you read of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And in Matthew 12, I believe you can see it well here, verse 49. So they come to Jesus as he's teaching and they say, Jesus, your mother and brethren, they want to talk to you. And this is what Jesus says. He stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. Did he have mother and brethren in the flesh? He had half-brothers and a mother in the flesh. In the Spirit, that fleshly relationship had nothing to do with a spiritual relationship. You see how that's the Lord is disconnecting that. The relation in the flesh has nothing to do with the relation in the Spirit. There's no reason for me to assume that because Mary was His mother that she was automatically saved because she was His mother. That's not the case. The mother and brethren are those that hear the Word of God and keep it. So if you're going to be in Jesus' family... And we're not talking about fleshly relationships either. To be in Jesus' family, you come through the Word of God. It's the only way to be in Jesus' family. So He's disconnecting the flesh from the Spirit. And that well-known verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth knowing Him no more. What's He saying? Take apart the fleshly relationships. Don't think about it according... And that's that's hard to do. I I realize that. But just because they're in a family and they've got the same last name as us and they've got the same blood as us, that does not mean that they're in the family of God because they're related to us. Jesus, His own half-brothers and mother, had to come through the Word of God by faith in order to be a part of the spiritual family. So often it's looked at the flesh, the reputation of the flesh, the works and deeds of the flesh, and we think that means that they're in the family of God. When in truth, Paul said, from this day forward... It's not the flesh that I'm concerned about in the least bit. From this day forward, we know no man after the flesh. I'm not looking at his name or his reputation or his good works. That has nothing to do with his salvation. What an error it is to put trust in the flesh and think that that's some sign that we're saved. But it does happen. Well, my mama was this and... My daddy was this. My mama, I've heard it. My mama was a charter member here. I've heard I was one of the charter members here. But you know, none of that has anything to do with whether I've come through the Word of God and I'm in Christ. That's right. It's got nothing to do with that. And so from henceforth, knowing no man after the flesh... But Jesus says, what have I to do with thee? What business is that of ours? Mine hour is not yet come. 
So Christ's hour, His time of glorification. Look at just a couple places in John 7, verse 30. They sought to take Him, but no man laid hands on Him because His hour was not yet come. John 8, 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on Him, for His hour was not yet come. John 12, 23. Now here He is, He's with His disciples in the upper room, and Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So I want you to think about this now. As you look at that, Jesus is saying, Mary, you don't determine when my hour of glorification is. And I believe if, if you put yourself in, in her shoe leather, here she is that to the eyes of everybody in the community, she had this child out of wedlock and she's telling this wacky story that God come down and I was a virgin and he, he impregnated me and this is the Son of God. Now what would you think if a young unmarried woman got pregnant and that's what she told you? What would you think? Now don't you reckon that's what they thought? She's a fornicator. This child is born of fornication. And I believe her desire is, Jesus, prove who you are. Let them know that you are who I said you were. Jesus says, mine hour's not come. You know when He's really going to prove who He is? when He's on the cross, and when He raises from the dead. But Mary cannot make Him to bring about a work just because she wants it. Mine hour's not yet come. Mary's not going to determine the hour. Now as Jesus is teaching, as we read in John 7 and John 8, they despised Him. They hated Him well before they took Him. He's teaching in the treasury He's teaching in the temple. They want to lay hands on Him. They want to arrest Him. They would like to stone Him. In one place, they took up stones to stone Him. But over and over, no man laid hands on Him. In, in that place, they took up stones to stone Him and the Bible says Jesus walked through the midst of them. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. They wasn't going to determine when his hour was either. So it's not Mary, his closest relative in the flesh, and it's not going to be those that hate him either. They're not going to arrest him at their will and at the time that they chose. Because there would have been times before that they would have taken him, but it was not his hour. So who determined that then? If it wasn't the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the religious rulers, and it wasn't Mary, who chose when the hour of glorification was going to be? It was God's hand. Do you know when His hour was going to be? <coughs> he was going to bow His head on the cross and give up the ghost. At the same time, think about this, at the same time that the priests are in the temple complex killing the Passover 
lamb. He's going to die at the same hour the literal Passover lamb is being killed. Who ordered that? How could you, how could you work that out any better? God brought that to pass. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He is the fulfillment of blood shed that my blood is not shed. He died that I would not die. He died that I could be brought out of Egypt and receive eternal salvation. So it's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. This is the will and working of God. Mary, mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So now here's the hard part with these three verses. She doesn't ask for anything. She states a fact. His answer sounds like I'm not going to do anything. But what she gets out of it is, you do whatever he says. That, that don't make sense to me. That's hard to put together. You see how that is? But I believe this. I think Mary's coming. She's not asking she's laying the case out before the Lord. That's what Hezekiah did when he received that letter from the enemy. They were mocking the Lord. They said, we're coming to, uh, <coughs> we're coming to destroy you and you're not going to stop us and your God's not going to stop. We've destroyed every other God in the land and yours is going to be no different. And Hezekiah took that letter down to the temple and he spread it out before the Lord and he told the Lord the situation that he was in. I believe that's a good practice in prayer. We can't tie the hand of the Lord and say, now, you do this. This is what I want you to do. You do this. Remember, he's not tied to me and bound to me to do my will. He's my Lord. I'm there to do his will. And if he says... My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It's not my job as a servant to argue with him. But as the Lord is going to prove by example, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but thy will be done. So she's going to lay the case out before him. He's going to respond. But there must have been some hope and readiness there. Whatever answer we get from the Lord, I believe verse 5, that's the mindset we ought to have. When we pray, when we lay out our accounts before the Lord, when we lay the case before the Lord, we ought to be ready afterward. Whatsoever He says, do that. Because it may not always make sense. You see, she's preparing them for a work. Now listen. So, in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've told all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. 
So the Lord tells them there, let down your nets for a drought. That's to catch a great catch of fishes. They have to be obedient to that in order to catch those fish. Now they're not putting fish in the net. They're not doing... That's not any of their work. You know what they have to do? They have to do what He says and let down the net. He's going to put the fish in there. But they have to let down the net. Again in 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore my beloved brethren, be as steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So is anything that we ever do in submission and obedience to the Lord, is it ever going to be pointless and worthless? The devil says you're wasting your time. This is doing nobody any good. Nobody listens to what you say. They don't care what you tell them. You're doing absolutely no good. But that's the devil. That's right. You know, a, a wise saying from childhood, consider the source. And that's as we ought to do. When the devil is whispering, consider the source and know that he's your enemy and he's a liar. And he cannot tell the truth. He can't tell the truth. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for Him to tell the truth. He's never told you one thing that was right. So consider the source. Paul says here, be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding because we know this. What you do in submission and obedience to the Lord will never be in vain. It'll never be empty. That's a, a promise from the Word of God. The devil says it's vain. God says your labor for me will never be in vain. So that, that really ought to push me to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding. And so in verse 6, so they, they've been told, whatsoever he saith to you, do it. May God help us to have that mindset towards the Word of the Lord. And so at this wedding, there's six water pots. They're filled with water. And John says, after the manner of purifying of the Jews, washing off, ablution, expiation, the washing and cleansing of the Jews. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, a firkin... Best I can tell was most likely a bath. The Jewish measurement, a bath. And one bath was between six and nine gallons. So these held uh, three firkins apiece. So the total amount of water here, once they fill those up, it's anywhere from 50 to 160 gallons of water that's going to be in these in these jugs. This is not a small work. It's not even at 50 gallons of water. That's an excessive 
work that the Lord's doing. And in Ephesians 3, unto Him that is able to do exceeding and abundantly more than we could ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. That working of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, He always overdoes, doesn't He? As we pray, and, and I'm sure at some point or another, we've been in a bad situation. And we've had to lay that situation out before the Lord and trust in Him. And He always overdoes. He always does more than we expected. It's always better than we thought it would have been. He's not just going to supply what they need, but He's going to do exceeding abundantly more than they could ask or think here. So according to the purifying in Mark chapter 7, so we've got some details in Mark here. Listen to what he says. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, (coughs) brazen vessels, and of tables. The Jews were a people of washing. A lot of that was tradition passed down, not what was given in the law. The law had cleansing and washing, but you know, man, man always wants to add to. We want to do more. I want to prove how clean I really am. I'm going to do more. And if we're not careful by opinion and by thoughts, we can create traditions that are not in the Word of God putting a strain on people that God never put on them. It's not God that did it. It's man that's done it. And so here, they wash, they clean. So these pots of water, maybe it's there to wash their hands. Maybe they've got them there to wash the tables and the vessels. All of this has got to be washed before they can eat. And these pots of water, they were placed there. And you know, for us, we're disconnected from this culture. But to the people in this day that read it, there's these water pots that's there for washing. Everybody knew what John was talking about. They could picture these water. They've seen them everywhere they've went. They can picture what he's talking about in their mind. Containing two or three firkins apiece, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus is told about wine. The disciples and servants, they apparently heard this conversation. Mary says, whatever He says, do it. So they must have been there. And Jesus says, fill these water pots up. Now what's that got to do with anything? Is that not what you would say? How is me putting water in the washing jugs, what difference is that going to make? And now if these were now three to nine gallons times three, so maybe 27 or 30 gallons in each of these jugs, and they don't have a water hose, they don't have a water spigot, they've got a well with a bucket, they're drawing this water out. This is... This is not an easy job. 
So they're carrying water to fill these up. And it, didn't, it wasn't a five-minute job either. I don't know how far they were from the well, but this was a work to do in order to fill these up. And so they accomplished that work, but you put yourself in those shoes and you say, this, is, this has got nothing to do with the need that's present. This is a waste of my time. Is that not the truth? <clears throat> but listen to some of these places. In Joshua chapter 6, the children of Israel had come to Jericho. You know what God tells them to do? March around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, march seven times and blow the horn. Well, what good is that? Now, they're not touching the wall. They're not got a chip and hammer going around hitting it. They're marching and never laying their hands on it. That sounds like a foolish way to win a battle, doesn't it? In 1 Kings 17, Elijah says unto her, Make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it to me, and after for thee and thy son, the widow and her son, she's going to starve to death. She's got a handful of meal left. We're going to eat that and we're going to die. And Elijah says, No, no. You go make me one first and bring it to me and I'll eat it, and then you make one for you and your son. That, that flour, the meal, it's not going to go empty. Thus saith the Lord. Do you see what a request that that is? I believe this. I believe every time she reached in, she got the last handful that was in there to make a cake. Every single time. She got every bit that was in there and yet the next time she went and reached back, there was another handful in there. That's the way the Lord works. Thus saith the Lord. In 2 Kings 3, make this valley full of ditches. <clears throat> They're dying of thirst. The armies have had no water. And the man of God says, dig ditches. Again, in chapter 4 of 2 Kings Go and borrow vessels abroad. Remember that woman? The creditor had took her sons. She had a little oil in the house. And he says, you go to your neighbors and your friends and get every empty vessel that you can find. Now her sons are gone. And you've got me going and getting empty vessels. <coughs> Naaman's got leprosy. And Elisha's going to say, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. See, it don't sound, that, that's got nothing. I've washed my whole life and I've still got leprosy. What good is that going to do me? See, if we're not careful, that's the opinion and thought we'll get. That's the opinion and thought the <laughs> devil would like to plant in our mind that our time is a waste, this is of no value, and it's doing no one any good. The servants, very likely, they at least thought that in their mind. This is ridiculous. It's hot. And what good is this doing? They've already washed the tables, and they've already washed the pots. But remember what Mary said. Whatever He says, do it. Don't question Him. Recognize His authority. Recognize His position and power 
and do as he says to do. We'll stop there. Uh, anybody, 